This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. John Preston is an award-winning journalist and author whose titles include The Dig, A Very English Scandal, and, most recently, Fall, the mystery of Robert Maxwell. John has a gift for bringing historical characters back to life, exposing hypocrisy and subterfuge, and for blending the tragedy and farce of human endeavour. He also has a wicked turn of phrase, honed by his many years on London's Fleet Street. Of disgraced media mogul Robert Maxwell, he writes, His smile was like that of Richard III. Before we meet John Preston, here's a clip of Fall, the mystery of Robert Maxwell, which is narrated by Simon Bubb. Just as its owner had intended, the yacht that made its way slowly up Manhattan's East River and docked at the Water Club at East 30th Street in early March 1991 caused a considerable stir. For a start, it was far bigger than any of its neighbours, so big that it took up eight berths instead of the customary one. Four stories high, gleaming white and topped with a mast bristling with satellite equipment, the yacht could clearly be seen from several blocks away. The man's identity and the reason for his visit soon became the subject of much excited speculation. In several newspapers it even displaced reports of the end of the First Gulf War from the front pages. Who was this portly press baron with the bushy eyebrows, the square jaw and the sly smile, people wondered. What little was known about him piqued their curiosity even more. Born to a peasant family in Czechoslovakia, he had apparently fought for the British Army during the war and been awarded one of the country's highest medals for gallantry. Now he was understood to be the possessor of a vast mansion, as well as a 40-button portable telephone. He was also described as a symbol of an age of flash, of big-time dreams and big-time deals. It seemed that his private life had been scarred by terrible tragedy and his business career by controversy. As for his personal fortune, this was estimated at between a billion and two billion dollars, a figure that was confidently predicted to increase by as much as $500,000 by the end of the year. Among the many publications he owned was the Daily Mirror, the biggest-selling left-wing tabloid newspaper in the UK. This alone gave him enormous political influence. According to Bob Bagdikian, dean of the Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, neither Caesar nor Franklin Roosevelt nor any pope has commanded as much power to shape the information on which so many people depend. John Preston, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you very much. We joined Robert Maxwell in 1991, seemingly at the zenith of his powers, when he's just acquired New York's iconic Daily News newspaper. But it's all about to fall apart around his ears. Yes, I mean, one of the peculiar things about Maxwell was that actually what appeared to be the moment of his greatest triumph, which was when he enters uh, New York on board his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, 
and is greeted like a kind of conquering hero, really, because uh, the New York uh, Daily News has been engaged in this very bitter strike. And when the strike is finally resolved and it's announced that Maxwell has won it, people start dancing in the street and the Archbishop of New York offers prayers of thanks. And, and when he walks into the most fashionable Chinese restaurant in New York that evening, the entire restaurant, they stand up and they give him an ovation. In one sense, for Maxwell, it's, it's the kind of fulfillment of all his dreams. But the terrible irony here is that already the cracks were starting to widen. And it was really only a matter of time before his empire came crashing down, which duly happened really only about six months later. And yet, at this time, he seems impregnable, although there are those who have their suspicions. One of the things that has dogged him throughout his time up till then is that this is the triumph of Flash, that actually he's a very low-born man mm. who doesn't really fit in with the establishment. That's absolutely true. Maxwell was a perpetual outsider, so everything about him was assumed, as it were. It was a kind of suit of clothes that he put on, tried to pass himself off as a kind of English gentleman. But at the same time, there was something inherently very dodgy about him, and his business career had been dogged by allegations that actually, if he wasn't actively crooked, he was certainly flying very close to the wind. So in one sense, what happened to Maxwell wasn't in retrospect that much of a surprise. The, the kind of seeds of his downfall had been there for a very long time. One of the peculiar things about Maxwell is it's very hard to imagine or think of anybody really in the 20th century who journeyed as far from his roots as Maxwell did. He was born and brought up in this large village, small town in Czechoslovakia as it then was. The town had a substantial Jewish population. The Maxwells were Jewish and they were really, really dirt poor. The family basically lived in a shed. Maxwell shared a single pair of shoes with one of his brothers in the winter and all the children ran around barefoot in the summer. And when Maxwell was 16 in 1939, he set off partly to kind of try to make his fame and fortune and partly because he was very keen to get involved in the war which had just been declared and, and he did duly get involved in the war he ended up in the british army where he rose to the rank of captain and won the military cross which was only one down from the victoria cross so you know and he, and he won it for a conspicuous act of bravery there's no doubt that maxwell was in many respects an extraordinary brave man but he was also very very ruthless he with his platoon he was walking into a town in um, what had been occupied france towards the end of the war there was still believed to be some germans in the town and there was some periodic sniping going on and in order to deter any of the townspeople from taking up arms against maxwell's platoon he took the mayor of the town into the town square and shot him dead through the head in full view of everyone else. And so, you know, hand in hand with Maxwell's almost suicidal bravery goes something pretty close to homicidal mania at the time. Yeah, there's a real sense that he is the kind of chancer who you need in a world war, but actually 
a man who is going to find it very difficult to settle into civilian life, and it's whilst he's in Berlin that he sees his main chance at the end of the Second World War for breaking into the establishment and, well, using publishing to further his own personal ambitions. Yes, I mean throughout the war. Maxwell had dreamed of finding a commodity which he'd be able to obtain for next to no money, which would be an enormous demand after the war. And one day in 1946, he was sitting in his office in Berlin, uh, and he was running at the time a Allied funded newspaper to reacquaint Berliners with the virtues of democracy. And one day this man uh, comes into his office and says, I've got a problem, can you help me? And he turns out to be the largest publisher of scientific journals in Germany. And basically he's been unable to publish anything throughout the war, as a result of which he has a vast backlog of material. And Maxwell's first instinct as it was with almost everybody, was to kick him out. And then he suddenly thought to himself, my God, maybe the commodity that I've been dreaming of for so long has just landed in my lap and it's knowledge. And it was really an absolutely brilliant idea. And what he does, he persuades British intelligence, who he's working for at the time, partly as a spy, he persuades them to stump up the money and he gets this vast backlog of, of scientific journals transported over to London, pays for them to be translated, and they become the cornerstone of what, within 12 years, is the largest publisher of scientific journals in the world. And Pergamon Press, as this publishing yeah. house was, really was a byword for quality scientific publication. And I suppose had the story stopped there, we may well view Robert Maxwell in a rather different light. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, everyone always said about Maxwell, oh, you know, the only thing he was ever interested in was uh, his profit margins. And, you know, there's some truth in that. But actually, there was a kind of unexpectedly idealistic side to Maxwell, which would periodically show itself. And I think he did care deeply about furthering the cause of scientific research. And indeed, the papers that he published paved the way for a number of kind of key breakthroughs in physics and chemistry and so on. So, yeah, I mean, as you say, if Maxwell had somehow dropped dead in 1961 rather than 1991, he would be remembered very, very differently. And he was regarded with absolute veneration, really, by the scientists whose work he published. They absolutely gave him credit for giving them a platform to disseminate their research that they may not have had otherwise. However, as we know, he had this overweening will to dominate, and so he was attracted to politics. Yes, I mean, typically for Maxwell, he announced that he was going to become prime minister before he actually became an MP. But he did then subsequently succeed in becoming Labour MP for Buckingham. 
And I think he really expected that the Labour Party would uh, greet him with a kind of fanfare of Harold Trumpeters when he first walked into the House of Commons and hail him as their you know, leader in waiting. But it didn't really work out like that. His fellow MPs fingered him pretty quickly as a colossal blowhard. And there are these extraordinary instances of Maxwell who would give speeches at an absolute drop of a hat, which went on and on and on and on. And his fellow MPs would be tugging on his jacket, trying to get him to sit down. And Maxwell would be taking absolutely no notice and droning on and on and on. And in fact, the only position of responsibility was given at the House of Commons was uh, he was put in charge of the House of Commons Catering Committee, which he did actually uh, you know, run very successfully. But it wasn't really what he had in mind. And it was when his political career collapsed, he lost his seat in the 1970 by-election. And, and that's really when his desire to own a newspaper became paramount. And really, it was for him, it was the next best thing in terms of wielding power and influence. And this, of course, brought him into conflict with another growing media mogul, Rupert Murdoch. And one thing that really comes through is just what great access you had to Rupert Murdoch, who has a wealth of stories about his run-ins with Maxwell. I got an email address for someone who worked in Rupert Murdoch's office. And I sent off an email saying I was writing this book about Robert Maxwell, and I'd be very grateful if I could possibly come and talk to him, thinking that the likelihood of my getting any reply at all was about a million to one. And then to my astonishment, it was only about an hour later, I got an email back saying, yes, uh, you know, Mr. Murdoch would be happy to talk to you. And I ended up actually going to see him in New York. And he was he was very funny about Maxwell. I mean, basically, as far as Maxwell was concerned, Murdoch became his nemesis. And it was really in seeking to prove to the world that he belonged, as it were, in the same arena as Murdoch, that Maxwell set in train a chain of events which led to his economic downfall, his physical disintegration, his mental disintegration, and ultimately his death. Whereas for Murdoch, Maxwell was just this kind of perpetual irritant that he could never quite manage to brush off. But nonetheless, it was, it was clear that Murdoch was not exactly haunted by Maxwell, but there was something about Maxwell, I think, that really got under Murdoch's skin. Um, the fact that they were constantly being mentioned in the same breath, they shared the same initials, which absolutely seemed to drive Murdoch uh, nuts. And it was as if there was almost this sort of element of Murdoch, who saw himself as an honourable, fastidious man, hated the idea that this kind of vulgar brute was in the same business as him. And in the same way, as soon as Maxwell senses that Murdoch might be pulling ahead of him, Maxwell will throw everything at trying to outdo Murdoch. He horribly overbids for the Macmillan Publishing Company in 1988. He, he robs the coffers of 
Pergamon and the Daily Mirror to to fund it. That starts his ultimate downfall and the loss of the Daily Mirror's pension pot. And yet, one senses that were it not Murdoch who had been bidding against him, he might not have been quite so reckless. I think that's true. I mean, I remember I spent a lot of time talking to Maxwell's son, Ian, for the book. And I remember Ian saying to me once, what you have to realise is that there was a period when it was as if the only two people on earth breathing the same air were my father and Rupert Murdoch. The two of them were the biggest power brokers in British politics. The Tories knew that if they wanted to be elected, they had to have the support of Murdoch's the son. The Labour Party knew that if they were going to be elected, they had to have the support of Maxwell's mirror. And yet, why didn't Maxwell leave it there? He'd already got to this very exalted position. But there was something terribly almost infantile in his desire, his need to be the victor. But as you say, that, of course, was what precipitated his downfall. And specifically, yes, it was buying the American publisher Macmillan in 1988, which he, for which he paid more than a billion dollars, more than the company's own directors thought it was worth. And from that moment on, he had kind of signed his own death warrant. Now, you give us the prism of his family life to look through, to try and understand a man who was both very able and very boorish. I suppose your argument is, unless we understand his upbringing and his wish to try and rebuild the Jewish family that was destroyed in the Holocaust, we will never really understand Robert Maxwell at all. I think that's true. I mean, when Maxwell leaves uh, the village in Czechoslovakia, his family are left behind. And it's only after the war that he learns that both his parents, three of his siblings and his grandfather all die in Auschwitz. And I do think that is the kind of prism that you have to look at Maxwell's life through. Particularly, you've got to bear in mind that Maxwell for years and years and years denied being Jewish. One of the reasons that he plumped for the name Robert Maxwell was that it didn't sound remotely Jewish. And it was really only in the last kind of six or seven years of his life when Maxwell went to Israel, which he found an intensely emotional experience, and I think that it sort of unloosed this tsunami of survivor guilt, which was, again, another of the factors that unhinged and destabilized Maxwell towards the end of his life. And I remember, again, Ian Maxwell telling me a story, which in a funny kind of way was probably what made me want to write the book more than anything else. He told me a story about Maxwell had an early flat screen television. And Ian walked in and Maxwell was crouched down with his nose really kind of pressed up against the glass. And on the screen, there was a documentary which showed this newsreel footage of 
Jewish prisoners being offloaded from trains at Auschwitz and being divided into two streams, as it were, the ones who are deemed fit to work and the ones who are being sent straight to the gas chamber. And Ian said, what are you doing? And Maxwell straightened up and turned around and said, I'm looking to see if I can spot my parents. And it seemed to me that whatever one thought of Maxwell, that was a desperately poignant story. And, and yeah, I think, I think that that extremely ambivalent attitude relationship to his own Judaism was one of the great kind of schisms at the heart of him. And family tragedy dogged him into the next generation as well. And he was to lose two of his children in his lifetime. That's absolutely true. And Maxwell originally had nine children. And then there was a daughter who died of meningitis when she was very young at the end of the 50s. And then about four years later, Michael, the oldest son, who was the heir designate to the Maxwell empire, as it had become by then, was about 18 and he was being driven home from a party by a chauffeur and the car crashed into an unlit lorry by the side of the road and Michael sustained very severe brain damage and was in a coma for the next eight years and then eventually died. And I think that it's at that moment really that a kind of very dark cloud settles over Maxwell and over family life that really never goes away. And, and I think that it had an incredibly profound effect on Maxwell himself, who just couldn't believe that he'd been sort of signalled out by fate for, for more tragedy in his life. And the repercussions of Robert Maxwell's life and his spectacular fall from grace and from the back of his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, are still being played out in our newspapers today. Obviously, his youngest daughter, his favourite, Ghislaine Maxwell, has been in the news. And I wondered if you saw any explanation for her life with Jeffrey Epstein as having been normalised by some of her father's behaviour in, well, sleeping with young secretaries and paying them off. Yeah, I'm actually rather sceptical about uh, drawing parallels between Robert Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. Um, they were very, very different creatures. You know, Maxwell was a colossal blowhard who had to dominate any room that he walked into, whereas Epstein was a much, much more shadowy figure uh, who was happiest, as it were, operating behind a curtain. I think that, you know, yes, of course, one can argue that when Maxwell died in 1991, all the children really had expected to be pretty handsomely provided for. And it was a terrible shock to them when it, it turned out there was really no money left in the coffers at all. And possibly it was a, a an even bigger shock to Ghislaine Maxwell than to any of her siblings. But, you know, yes, of course, one could argue that she gravitated to Epstein because he, by this stage, was a very rich man. He allowed her to continue the lifestyle that she had become 
fairly accustomed to by this stage. But I don't see the seeds of Ghislaine's subsequent downfall in her upbringing particularly. I mean, you know, there are other of her siblings who've managed to have, you know, perfectly well adjusted, reasonably successful lives. But I see what happened with her and Epstein as being this kind of terrible story of someone losing their moral center. And I don't believe that she'd lost it sufficiently when her father was alive to explain what happened later on. And in a ironic twist that you really couldn't have made up, the yacht that was named after her had to end up being owned by Rupert Murdoch and his wife. Yeah, I mean, was, in fact, it was very weird. I remember when I was finishing up with Murdoch and uh, you know, about to say goodbye, and he went, oh, you know, the really strange thing happened. Years after Maxwell's death, Murdoch's second wife, Anna, from whom he was divorced by this stage, but quite amicably divorced, her subsequent husband had died. She wanted to get buy a yacht and she did end up buying a yacht which was called something completely different it was only several months after she'd bought the yacht that she realized it had originally been the lady Ghislaine and for me it was just an extraordinary example of how closely and, and fatalistically the two men's destinies were entwined. We've already discussed your award-winning biography of Robert Maxwell. And as I was flicking through your back catalogue, I remembered that you'd also written a very English scandal about another man who had a spectacular <laughs> fall from grace in the 1970s. Yes, that's right. Uh, Jeremy Thorpe, who was the then leader of the Liberal Party, who was at one time the kind of pivotal figure in, in British politics. There were two general elections in 1974. The Conservatives won the first one, but didn't actually have a majority. And so Ted Heath, the leader of the Conservatives, tried to go into a coalition with the Liberals led by Jeremy Thorpe. And um, it didn't in fact work. And Heath sort of limped on uh, running a minority government. But again, it was really only a matter of four years later that Thorpe went on trial at the Old Bailey, accused of conspiracy to murder. He had uh, siphoned off £10,000 from Liberal Party funds to pay a hitman to kill his former lover, Norman Scott. But the hitman, who is probably the most incompetent hitman in the history of hired assassinations, uh, succeeded only in killing Norman Scott's dog. And thus was born the Jeremy Thorpe affair, which had always fascinated me. So I did write a very English scandal, which I think came out in about 2016, 2017. And was made into a wonderful TV miniseries starring Hugh Grant. Yeah, it was. I mean, I was very lucky that when the book came out, it was very quickly bought by a production company uh, who said, oh, we're going to turn this into a TV series, which I thought was great. 
And uh, the next thing I heard was, um, oh, and Russell T. Davis uh, is going to be writing it, who'd done Doctor Who and Queer as Folk and lots of other great things. I thought, oh, that's fantastic as well. Then I heard that Stephen Frears, who's done innumerable fantastic movies, was going to be directing it. And I thought, oh, my God, it just gets better and better. And then I heard that Hugh Grant was going to be playing Jeremy Thorpe. And I, at this point, I kind of thought, uh-oh. Um, I mean, Hugh Grant, yeah, he's very famous and everything like that. But I just can't see it, really. And initially, it just seemed like this terrible piece of miscasting. And then I went on set, which I think was possibly one Hugh Grant's first days of filming. I can't remember. Anyway, he was there. He'd already been made up. He was wearing these very distinctive clothes that Jeremy thought wore, thought by this kind of predilection for wearing double-breasted waistcoats. And he also had this very exaggerated comb over because he was going bald and was very vain. And Hugh also had that, the thought comb over and the double-breasted waistcoats. And he started talking and he just, it was like Thorpe had been kind of reincarnated in front of me. And I just thought, my God, this is absolutely uncanny. And he was brilliant. So I was incredibly lucky in that respect. And he really brings out that hubris and pomposity and the level of farce as well of, as you say, a, a bungled murder attempt, a, a politician who believes that he's bigger than the law and should be allowed to get away with whatever he wants in his private life and brings the whole thing tumbling down around his ears making it worse with everything that he tries to do to steer away the inevitable. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I suppose appealed to me more than anything else about the Jeremy Thorpe affair was that, you know, you very seldom in life come across a true story which has such a perfect blend of tragedy and farce, which the Thorpe affair unquestionably did. But there was also, I suppose, there was another element to it as well, which is I think that Alan Bennett, the playwright, said that the most boring period of all in history is the recent past, which I think is completely true. And then you go back a bit further and, you know, it tilts over an, a kind of indefinable point and it becomes history. And then it does become interesting, or so, particularly if there's a sort of vivid contrast between the way we live now and the way people lived then. And the great glaring difference in the case of Jeremy Thorpe was that attitudes to homosexuality in my lifetime have changed out of all recognition. You know, when I was a child, uh, people were still being sent to prison for being gay. Whereas now, of course, you know, one can get married and have children and all, all the rest of it. And, and however tragic and comic the Thorpe affair was, none of it would ever have happened if the prejudice against homosexuality hadn't been so vicious and deeply embedded. So that was really one of the things that fascinated me most of all about the story and made me feel that perhaps the time was right to, to as it were, kind of revisit it for, for a younger audience who may not have known anything about it. And indeed, actually, I remember 
when I was first thinking of doing it, I went into my publishers and said, you know, who here remembers who Jeremy Thorpe was? And nobody put up their hand, which I did find a bit discouraging. But then it made me think, well, you know, actually, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe they are kind of ripe to be retold the story. Now, you have a great ear for dialogue, which really comes through in the audiobook versions of of both these books. And we'll come on and talk about that a little bit later. And for many years, you were the chief television correspondent for the Sunday Telegraph newspaper. Mm. Do you write your books with a visual aspect to them? Can you see what they might look like on a screen? I think that's true to some extent. I mean, I I do remember thinking when I was writing A Very English Scandal, it seemed to me there was something very visual about it and that it could translate to television quite easily. And actually, in a funny kind of way, when I was doing the Maxwell book, it was such an extraordinary story. It felt, to some extent, it was like a sort of build your own Citizen Kane kit or it's a sort of mixture of Citizen Kane and the great Gatsby and uh, a man called Melmot in, in Trollope's novel, The Way We Live Now. Uh, you know, there were all these sort of elements floating around. And I don't think I do it consciously, but I do like to try to visualize something that, I, that I'm writing about. I find it very useful to have a kind of picture in my mind's eye. So yes, to some extent, I don't sit there going, oh, this will look good on screen or anything like that. But I do, there's a sort of funny kind of inner projector, if that makes sense, that's sort of screening a movie on the inside of my head. Now, by your own admission, you didn't call Hugh Grant as being the ideal candidate to play Jeremy Thorpe. Any ideas who might play Robert Maxwell on the screen? Well, that's, that's sort of up for discussion at the moment, actually, because I'm very lucky that uh, the rights to, to fall have, have been bought. And, and that's, um, I hope, is being turned into a television series as well. I don't think I should vouchsafe my thoughts at the moment for fear that it might might prejudice things. I do, I've got some ideas, but whoever plays Maxwell, I never met Maxwell, but I was in a room full of people years and years ago on Fleet Street, uh, when Fleet Street was still going, and Maxwell walked in. And the extraordinary thing was everybody stopped talking. And I just remember at the time thinking, wow, you know, you sort of see that happening on Clint Eastwood movies, but it really doesn't happen very often in real life. So I think whoever does play Maxwell needs to throw out a lot of kind of physical power, as it were. So I think it needs to be someone with both a lot of charisma and possibly quite a bit of physical bulk as well. We mentioned your breakthrough novel, The Dig, which deals with the excavation of an Iron Age boat burial at Sutton Hoo in Suffolk, just before the beginning of the Second World War. And you've got a family connection to one of the major characters in there. I do, but weirdly, I didn't actually know that I had a family connection about it uh, for a long, long time. My aunt 
who was an archaeologist, found the first gold that was discovered at Sutton Hoo in the summer of 1939. But for various complicated reasons, I didn't really see my aunt when I was growing up. She and my father didn't really get on. And she died oh, slightly more than 20 years ago. And I mentioned her in a TV review that I'd written for the Sunday Telegraph. And a few days later, I got a letter from someone who said, I read your review and I think I might be your second cousin once removed. And I don't know if it's true anymore. There used to be a sort of unwritten rule that most people who wrote to newspapers, there was a strong likelihood that they were they, they might be mad, uh, particularly if they wrote in green ink. Actually, I'd say this letter wasn't in green ink, but um, I wrote back in a rather sort of hoity-toity way saying, oh, well, what on earth makes you think that? And she wrote back a very eminently reasonable letter saying, well, because of this and that and so on. And I looked at it and I thought, oh my God, I think she probably is my second cousin once removed. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I met up with her. She was this absolutely delightful woman in her then late 80s. And again, as I was leaving, she said as a kind of afterthought, oh, and I assume you know that your aunt found the first gold at Sutton Who, And I had absolutely no idea. And as I say, my aunt had died by then. And I went away and there was something that just kept kind of gnawing away at me. And I began to do some research which wasn't very difficult because there was a lot of stuff written about the 1939 dig. And the more I read, the more fascinated I became. And I'd always wanted to do a kind of grown up version of a buried treasure story that would hark back to books like Treasure Island and Moonfleet that I'd enjoyed so much as a child, which we may get onto later. And it seemed to me again that this had kind of just landed in in my lap and it was a story that seemed to say a lot about class and there was something very poignant about the fact that they were uncovering the remains of what was at the time this lost civilization at a time when people really did think their own civilization was about to be blown to smithereens so it had a lot of different layers to it. So I wrote the novel, which came out years ago. I mean, it came out in something like 2005. And the rights were bought by this incredibly determined producer called Ellie Wood, who stuck with it for years and years and years and years and years, and eventually got it made, much to my astonishment. I'd kind of given up all hope years ago. And then it did get made. And then it was due to come out in the cinemas, but of course all the cinemas were closed because of the pandemic. So I thought, oh God, this is a disaster. No one's going to go and see the thing. But in a funny kind of way, it turned out in some respects to be a sort of perfect lockdown movie because I think there was something quite comforting about the idea that people were in some respects joined to their forebears it was a movie that families could watch together and 
children hopefully could watch and enjoy and might even learn something. So it, it kind of, you know, flared back into life, much to my astonishment and delight. Now, a huge amount was made of how authentic Rafe Fiennes' Suffolk accent was. And something that I was very glad to find out was that the audiobook version also has a narrator who does a pretty good Suffolk accent himself. I know that you're a huge fan of audiobooks. And so you must be delighted that all three books that we're talking about today have been made into very high quality audio. I'm absolutely delighted. Yeah, it's a particular thrill for me. And um, as you say, yes, Ray Fiennes, I think, did get his Suffolk accent spot on, as did the person who did the audiobook for for The Dig. And a Suffolk accent actually is extremely hard to do because it's nothing like a kind of traditional West Country accent, but people tend to assume that it is. And indeed, Ray Fiennes was so obsessed with it that he stayed doing his Suffolk accent throughout filming. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, he stayed doing his Suffolk accent and filming went on for about eight or nine weeks. And as far as I know, the mask never slipped all that time. Very impressive. Now, I know all journalists are meant to have a good nose for a story. You have uncovered three fabulous stories over the last two decades. I'm guessing you might have another one up your sleeve. What can we expect in months to come? Well, I've I've just written a uh, three-part drama series, which is being filmed at the moment for ITV, about a man called John Stonehouse, who is a Labour MP who rose to the rank of Postmaster General, which was then a very high-ranking job uh, in the late 1960s. And then uh, everything fell apart, and he ended up faking his own death. He left a pile of clothes on a beach in Florida and flew off to Australia, where he joined up with his mistress. And he was only caught because the Australian police were under the impression that he was Lord Lucan. So again, it's a kind of peculiar mixture of tragedy and farce. And I've I've always been fascinated with the story. And I I didn't want to do it as a book, actually. I thought it would be much more interesting to try and do it as a drama series. And I'm very lucky that Matthew McFadden uh, is playing Stonehouse and his real-life wife, Keely Hawes, is playing uh, Stonehouse's wife, Barbara. And uh, very brilliant they are too. Um, so, yeah, that's my, my latest project. Well, I shall look forward to that coming to my TV screens. And is there another book in the pipeline? I'm not allowed to talk about it at the moment, but I will be allowed to talk about it relatively soon, I think. Uh, and I am very would be very, very happy to talk to you about it. John, so far we've covered the books that you have written, but now it's time for you to tell us a bit about some of the books that you've enjoyed reading with the books of your life. So was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Yes, I think so. I think the book that made the most impression on me as a child was She by Ryder Haggard which, as far as I was concerned, 
absolutely transported me to this kind of magical realm where this extraordinary goddess, she, uh, bathed in fire in order to stay immortal. And um, uh, for people who haven't read Ryder Haggard, he's like a sort of novelistic version of, of Raiders of the Lost Ark, I suppose. And there's, there's something of that kind of tone. They're incredibly far-fetched yet weirdly plausible adventure stories invariably set in Africa or other exotic locations. And I completely fell in love with she as a boy. So that was probably the thing that absolutely kick-started me. I didn't come from a particularly literary household, but I was an only child. I was brought up in a tiny little village in the middle of the country, and there wasn't really a hell of a lot to do. And so I did read a lot. And my father, who certainly wouldn't have described himself as a literary man, was obsessed with what were at the time greenback penguins, which were uh, the crime novels that Penguin used to um, publish, all of which had green covers. And so I, having sort of, I suppose, I'm not sure if graduated is the right word from Ryder Haggard, I then became obsessed with uh, English crime novelists of the 1940s and 50s, people like Marjorie Allingham and Josephine Tay and a host of others. And so they kind of sustained me throughout my teenage years. And I suppose the book that absolutely sort of electrified me as an adult and made me want to become a writer was reading Saul Bellow's Humboldt's Gift. It's almost like holding a kind of firework in your hand and just sort of watching it spark into life. It's an absolutely wonderful book that's extremely funny. Um, it's also actually rather tragic, but it's one of those books that it's like just inhaling pure oxygen and you just absolutely stream through it. Um, and so that made me think about the possibilities of language more than anything else. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Yes, I think that uh, there's a very short novel, novella really, by a man called J.L. Carr called A Month in the Country, which is set in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. And it's about a man who would have what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder who comes and is employed to restore a medieval wall painting in an obscure English parish church. And in restoring the wall painting, he is himself restored. And it's a book that I've always loved. And it made me when I first thought about the dig, I immediately thought about a month in the country. And, and it made me realize that there's something about archaeology, which is, of course, very akin to novel writing in a way. You're sort of scraping the layers of something and you're hoping to expose it. And in a way, that's what you do with a character when you're writing. You try to kind of pare the outer layers off them and, uh, and, and see what kind of lies at their core. And is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? I think I would, I would recommend Anything by Anne Tyler, who 
I really do think is like a sort of latter day Jane Austen. I mean, I think I think she's that good. Um, and books like A Clockwork Planet um, and really anything uh, redhead by the side of the road. I mean, you know, she has got an extraordinary ability to expose her characters foibles without in any way condemning them. Uh, and um, and she really does kind of make them hum with life. And that's a, that's an absolutely fantastic gift, I think. Well, John Preston, thank you so much for sharing your passion for reading with the listeners and for being a guest on the show today and taking us further into the worlds of all three of the books that we've been talking about. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Thanks again to my guest, John Preston, and to the show's producer, Sean Preece. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. Meanwhile, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books, or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.